Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, I trust you do hope it's possible, that you believe it's possible to love your work. Hey, this is Dan Miller. We're going to spend the next 48 minutes together talking about questions that come from you, questions that come from me. You know, this process of adjusting to, adapting to, and taking advantage of the economy right now, the workplace changes, is something we are all confronted with. We have to think differently. We have to get ourselves outside of the box in order to see opportunities that other people don't see. Well, each week we take 48 minutes here. I go back and grab some of the most intriguing questions that you'll have submitted. You can submit questions at the podcast, link on 48days.com, or just shoot an email to askdan at 48days.com. Either way, those questions come in. I value those. Take those seriously. Know that you invest your own time and energy to even craft a question, and then certainly to listen to the podcast. I value the input that I get from you all. That's where I continue to stretch myself. It prompts me to go to research to figure out some of these things. If I haven't lived it or experienced it, to at least go do the research so that we can all grow together. Here's some of the questions we're going to discuss today. Dan, is it true that winners never quit? Talked about that last week a little bit. Got a comment, a follow-up on that. Dan, you gave me a $3,000 piece of advice. Thanks. I'm going to tell you what this gentleman experienced. You can do the same. Dan, do I need consent or release agreements from people that I interview, take photos of, videotape, and so on? Here's an intriguing question I need to get to. It says, I would like to know if your suggestions will work for those who do not know God. Now, that's a heavy question, obviously, and one that I'm going to try to unpack a little bit. Challenging, to say the least. And um, how do you go about finding your next line of work that does not feel like work? Well, those are some of the questions we're going to address. Here's our quotation for the day. It comes from Henry David Thoreau, who says, If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. I love that quotation. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. You know, I'm reminded of the movie August Rush, one of my all-time favorite movies. I don't think it ever did that great, you know, at the box office, but I think it is classic. We got copies and gave them to our kids and our grandkids because it's this little boy who hears music and it defines the direction of his life but ultimately got to play and create and his dream come together in more ways than just having to do with music also the reconnection with his biological mom and dad just a wonderful wonderful story but uh, i know a lot of you hear music that comes from a different drummer than what the common is be grateful for that don't ever try to be normal don't ever try to be common be weird you know be different i mean there just isn't much attraction to uh, being normal doing what everyone else is doing when our kids were growing up they knew though the worst possible argument they could possibly make 
for getting permission to do something was to say, well, everyone else is doing it. All the other kids at school are doing it because I really believe that if everyone else is doing it, it's probably time to turn around and go the other way. You know, being the most popular certainly does not imply or mean being the best. I mean, we see that in a lot of different things. I mean, McDonald's is probably the most popular you know, food place in the world. Does that mean it's the most nutritious and best for you? Well, certainly not. Not any criticism of them. They do what they do. They make a lot of money, and rightfully so. But don't equate being the most popular with being something that makes the most sense or the has the most value for going that direction at all. Well, Al says, Al, Al, this is from Tokyo, Japan, just a quick note, but it says, as you know, last Friday, a huge earthquake hit northern Japan. I was in central Tokyo at the time, and it was quite a surreal moment. Train service was stopped, and I began walking for about three hours to my brother-in-law. I had your podcast to keep me going, and it greatly helped my journey. Thanks for everything you do. Well, thanks for your note, Al. I mean, I just cannot imagine the devastation that's happening in Japan right now. I mean, it's one of those things where it's almost, it is surreal. I mean, it's so enormous. It's like, how could we possibly help or make a difference? And it's easy to dismiss when you see it on TV. In fact, the TV images look like something out of a horror movie. It's like, this is not reality. Where you see the the wave coming in and the cars just being flipped around and boats just being tossed over bridges and then you know houses that are out at sea just floating there it's like this can't really be real i can't imagine the devastation of being there and actually having to live through that so our thoughts and prayers are with you as you start to rebuild uh, lives it, it, it just is beyond comprehension. We need to count our blessings and be grateful for the things that we have. But then at the same time, being confident that, you know, humanity offers a lot of resources. And when things are tough, we do tend to band together and help each other. So I have a lot of confidence that, uh, you know, we will pool our resources and help those that are struggling most in any situation. Well, here's a question from Frank, who says, Dan, I listened to last week's show and have thought about the comment you made at the beginning about winners never quit. Now, what I what I talked about, just as a recap, is I talked about the old adage, winners never quit, quitters never win, and how that's a bunch of baloney. That's not true. Winners do quit. Quit often and quit quickly and move on. Sometimes persistence is not an admirable quality. So he says, I suppose it's someone far smarter than I has said this already, but it seems to me that the statement should be reworded to be winners aren't quitters. A quitter who is someone who, when faced with a losing situation, says, I can't do this. What was I thinking? And goes to crawl under a rock and feel sorry for themselves. A winner, on the other hand, knows that by quitting in one circumstance, learning and moving on will make them even bigger winners later. So Frank says, my question is, how long do you wait with a new business before it's clear that it isn't going to be all you hoped or need it to be? And Frank, from your company's signature, it appears that you have a grocery in Delhi. I think that there needs to be a timeline for a business. Now, when, when people talk to me about businesses that they want to start, I tell them you ought to be able to, within six to 12 months, really see that it's going to generate the income that you're anticipating. I think if you go 12 months, 
in a business, pretty much any kind of business, and aren't seeing reasonable profits, I think there is reason then to question, is this something that I need to continue? Is this something that really is going to ultimately have the kind of benefits that I anticipated? I don't think it's wise to just continue indefinitely in a business. And, you know, frankly, if a business is losing money, you need to draw a line in the sand pretty quickly. Is there really rationale for continuing in that direction? You know, I see a lot of business plans from, uh, you know, young people who are putting together these projections on paper and they do a fancy business plan and it shows that, you know, five years from now, it's going to be worth, you know, $5 billion, but this year they're going to lose a quarter of a million dollars. So they need funding, they need venture capital, they need donations or whatever to put into their business so they can lose all this money because that somehow is going to turn the corner. Well, then they'll start making money. You know, for the most part, I think that's a bunch of hogwash. I don't know of many businesses where it's justified to see it as just a black hole. You're going to lose money for a couple years and then slowly it's going to turn around. Now, I know there are some big glaring examples out there, you know, like Google or Amazon. Amazon's probably a better example where, you know, it did lose money for a lot of time before it kind of turned the corner. But, you know, that even that's a rarity. I mean, if you think about it, think about the most simple business. If you're going to start a, a lawn mowing business, well, so you go down to Home Depot and you spend $600 on a lawnmower, you know, to start out. But by golly, you ought to in the first month recapture your initial investment and start making money. There's no rationale. And in that situation, I would never encourage somebody to buy a, you know, $60,000 truck and trailer so that you, I mean, start with what you have, bootstrap it so you can grow the business. But yeah, I think if you've gone a year and you're not seeing profitability, you need to take a fresh look. And I often encourage people in coaching. Well, coaching is an example. I see people who position themselves as a coach and a year passes and they do not have paying clients and they haven't made, you know, a thousand dollars in a given month. I tell them, you know, something's wrong with this picture. You need to stop this. Don't just continue thinking that something magical is going to happen and you then are going to be a successful coach. For whatever reasons, it isn't working. You know, if you have marketed yourself well, positioned, spread the word, and you still aren't making money after a year, don't just keep thinking that it's going to happen. Change what you're doing, change direction, go on to something else. Darren says, you mentioned that when you were starting out, now this is the one, the subject line in his email says, you gave me a $3,000 plus piece of advice. Darren says, you mentioned that when you were starting out, you used to gain free admission to various conferences by serving as a volunteer. I wanted to attend an upcoming fitness industry conference that would have cost me $995 just for registration. And then I remembered your advice. I emailed the event planner with my resume to see if she wanted my help. She responded back within the hour and offered me free admission to the conference as well as five nights free in a five-star hotel in San Francisco during the conference. Of course, the connections I made at the conference will far surpass the value of the free trip. Thanks for the advice. Well, thanks for sharing that, Darren. That's a cool testimonial. And it really isn't that complicated. 
I mean, I did that for years when I was first starting out and didn't have two nickels to rub together where I would simply contact event planners and say, you know, hey, I'll come help. Or, you know, Zig Ziglar was going to be speaking at a big success conference. I'd contact them and say, hey, my wife and I will help you sell product at a table. I mean, we got admission, free admission to conferences and workshops anywhere we wanted to go like that. And then uh, as I was more successful and, uh, you know, was able to go to conferences and all, I still recognized opportunities to go to like Mark Victor Hansen's Megabook University. All right. That was one of the things I went. That would have been um, uh, that would have been only about 10 years ago, probably. But went to one of his conferences. He had an affiliate program set up where if you invite other people to come and they come as a result of my referral, I would get like a third of the the conference admission fee. So if that was a thousand dollars, which I think it was less than that, but I think it was uh, I think it was like seven hundred dollars. Let's say it was six hundred dollars, just to make the math easy. So I invite somebody to go. I immediately get a credit for two hundred dollars. Well, if I invite three other people to go, then obviously I've recovered my initial investment to go. So I would promote that even as I had a small newsletter list. I'd say, hey, join me in Los Angeles. We'll go to Mark Victor Hansen's conference. And on Friday night, all of us that know each other are connected through me, at least. We'll have dinner together. I'll pay for your dinner. We'll have a good time together. Now, it's not a secret what I was doing by inviting people. I was getting rewarded as with part of their admission fee that would be returned to me. So there were times when I would have like 30 people that would go to an event like that. Well, not only did I get my way paid free, and I usually would take Joanne or one of my kids would go with me, and we'd provide a meal for everybody while we were there. But often I would get, you know, five or $6,000 sent back to me as a result of promoting that kind of an event. So I did that a lot. I mean, I still do that a lot, where I promote other people's conferences and get rewarded on the back end, and you can do the same. But anyway, thanks for your uh, your feedback, Darren, that it worked for you as well. Uh, nothing rocket science about it. You just have to be creative and do that. And yes, I'd love to get a copy of your book. And, and the, the copy of Darren's book, it, the title is In You God Trust. Uh, think about that a minute. I mean, I love that, you know, twist on a very common adage in God we trust, but in you, God trust the five domains of personal responsibility. Thanks. I shot Darren a copy of my, uh, or my address so he can send me a copy of that book. Be delighted to get that. Always thrilled to see somebody who took action on their idea and turned it into a book. Anthony says, Dan, I work on staff at a private nonprofit college. I received information recently professional salary survey of others in my line of work, which confirms my thought that my salary is significantly less than others in my field and position, and certainly less than I merit. Should I petition for a raise, and what's the best way to do that? Well, yeah, you can do that at any time. You don't need to wait for an annual review. You ought to know what your market value is at any given time. A lot of people who have been with the same company or organization for 15 years, you know, realize they're dramatically underemployed. They're undercompensated at least. And if that's true, you ought to have a sense of what your real value is. But now it needs to be what your real value is. So you can use sites like salary.com to get a sense of what the norm is for your line of work with where you live. 
And yes, you can petition for a raise based on your level of responsibility and contribution. Now, keep in mind, your compensation has nothing to do with your age, how long you've been there, with your needs, how much your mortgage is, your circumstances. Those things have nothing to do with what you're paid. You need to know that you are being paid based on the value that you bring and your level of responsibility. So if you get a clear sense of what that is and it's realistic, then sure you can petition your current employer for a match if you know that you're being underpaid. Now, can they give that? Will they give that? Maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe they they may say, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, we've been waiting for you to come and knock on our door. Now, chances are they won't say that. And if they say, well, there's just no way we can possibly do that. Well, then if you have the confidence that you are undercompensated, you know your value in the marketplace, then it's simply a matter of doing a job search, changing organizations. And frankly, that is the way most people get significant raises these days. It's not by staying in one company. It's by changing organizations. But just just think about the logic of it. Uh, As my granddaughter says, but because based on one of the movies, what is it? I had a toy story or Shrek or one of those. Think about the logic of this. She rolls that off her tongue when she's trying to present her case. It's really cute. But in this case, let's think about the logic of it. Working for the same company, you may get a three or 4% cost of living, annual cost of living raise. It's not likely that you're going to get a 20% raise or that you're going to double your income. But that's not uncommon when people change organizations where they've been with one organization for a long time. They realize they're undercompensated or underemployed there. They realize they have a higher level of value than what they had 10 years ago. So they do a job search and then they do double or triple their income. Not uncommon at all. Mike says, Dan, I'd like to start a blog that would feature individual craftsmen, their work in their workshops, people that make great stuff by hand. In time to take this to a webcast format, I'm wondering what would be needed in terms of a consent release agreement from those I interview, take photos of, videotape, and so on. Any input would be appreciated. Well, I've, I have been on the receiving end or uh, interviewee end of this um, thousands of times where people are going to take photos, interview me, whether that's, you know, doing a video interview or whether it's using Skype or whether it's using the telephone. I mean, lots of those things. And uh, it's not a complicated process at all. Well, what I encourage you to do is just simply Google interview consent form. You're going to get a several examples there. Just pull something together that's simple. Don't make it too complex. Don't have three pages of legalese for someone that you're going to interview. I frankly would resist that. 99.9% of all the interviews that I've done that have then been turned into products that people sell, I've never signed anything. It's just a verbal consent. I just say, sure, go ahead, do it. So it really doesn't need to be very complicated, but if you'd feel more comfortable with an an agreement that is written out, have a little two paragraph thing that says the person understands that you are going to use the content and you, you have the rights then to use that in any way that you want to. Just keep it simple. Well, Brian says, I've just gotten started with an online blog. I initially planned on selling an ebook, but I recently got the idea for doing several presentations, which would teach 
the same information. Can I use software such as PowerPoint to create these presentations and then sell them? Or do I need special licensing? How about a Word document? Now, this is kind of related to the question that I just answered here about having uh, getting consent. Again, this is something you don't want to make it very complicated. And this really isn't a problem at all. Now, let me start with something really simple. You know, most great products use common components uh, from things that are already readily available. So if you go to Home Depot and you get lumber and nails and shingles and windows and build me a beautiful house, you know, you get paid for the house that you created. You don't have an ongoing obligation to the people who made those original products. Now that may seem obvious and it's certainly a little different when we talk about software generated products, but not really very much. You're, you're not selling the functionality of PowerPoint or Word. You're just selling one use or one application. Now, if you were selling the software so that I could now install PowerPoint on my computer and duplicate the functionality, that's totally different. But if you're just doing a presentation, and I mean, there are millions of presentations being done using PowerPoint, where somebody is getting paid for their presentation, paid for the knowledge that they're conveying, that they're sharing, but they certainly don't have a licensing issue because they used PowerPoint as part of that presentation. No, you can do that. You don't need any kind of special licensing at all. You're free to do that. Vicki says, uh, Dan, I'm rereading 48 Days to the Work You Love to Get Ideas on page 145 in the essay entitled Poverty, Living, or Excellence. You mentioned a lady who had a high school education and an $8 an hour job who leveraged her proficiency in English and Spanish to become a well-paid medical environment interpreter. Like her, I also have proficiency in English and Spanish, but no medical background. I have an MA in Spanish and several years experience as a purchasing assistant. I'd like to do the same thing she did. Is there a medical interpreter certification program or course I could take that would enable me to present my skills in the form of a concrete credential? How did she get clients? Did she approach hospitals or did she approach medical staffing agencies as well? What steps would I need to take to replicate the steps she took to build up to 20 hours per week, billing $50 per hour? Thank you, Vicki. Vicki, go back and reread. I talked about the lady who didn't even have a high school education. She didn't have any kind of credentials at all. She had, was in an $8 an hour job and she simply presented herself, made up some little $10 business cards where it said that she was a translator. In one, one side of the card, it had it in Spanish, the other side in English. And she just simply walked in. She didn't do any kind of formal presentation at all. Walked into legal and medical organizations asking if they could use their services and booked herself solid. You know, you say that you have a master's degree in Spanish. And now you're asking about medical interpreter certification program. I don't know of any such thing in the world. Don't make this so complicated. People don't give a rip about certification credentials. The question is, can you do this? Can you perform? This is not a complicated kind of thing. You know, this is the irony. Sometimes advanced degrees make us look at things in a more complex way. And we bypass opportunities because we try to make them so complex. You don't need to be certified. You don't need a medical background or knowledge. You need to be able to interpret. 
So you can do the same thing that that lady did. Identify 10 or 15 organizations that would be potential users of your skills. You know, legal firms, obviously, are one that she targeted. And then medical facilities as well. That's what she did. You can do the same thing. And you, if you want to do the, use those same industries, you can do it. No, you don't need to be certified. I don't know of training programs that give you licensing for doing that. It's not an issue. Just go do it. Well, Joy from Tulsa says, uh, since reading 48 Days to the Work You Love, I've been asking God to rekindle memories and passions from childhood. Like a light bulb, I can see my life's theme and I'm so excited. How does one formulate a plan exactly? Or is there a book that will take me through the process step by step so I can get started? Again, this is similar. Joy, don't make this complicated. I mean, one of the things that Seth Godin talks about in his new book, uh, Poke the Box, I mean, the whole concept in there is initiate, start, do something. He says, you know, everyone wants a map. Everyone wants a map. But if you draw a map, people will follow you. Just initiate, just start, just do it. I don't know how I could set out more clearly a step-by-step process than what I've already done in 48 Days to the Work You Love about how you do this. But this is something that intrigues me that I'm really struggling with. Uh, people come here for a right to the bank, as an example. We, our, our next event's coming up in a couple of weeks, right to the bank, where we teach people how to leverage your intellectual expertise, how to take your knowledge that you have, put it into writing, and then how do you make money with that? How do you turn that into money? We go through hundreds of examples, you know, real people, real books that we have here, and tell them how people did that. And I still have people at the end of the conference who will say, well, I need a checklist. And I'm thinking, how can we be more explicit about how to do this? But, and still allow variation. See, that's the thing. You want the process to be reflective of who you are as a unique individual. Your process is going to be different. Don't try to do exactly what Donald Trump or Richard Branson did. Do what you, do what Dan Miller needs to do to be successful in this. Don't get caught up in having to just go through a checklist. You you will never have the fully embraced uniqueness God has given you by following a checklist. You've got to allow the the creativity to make it authentic for you. Uh, sometimes I, I, it's hard for me to get my head around this sometimes to, to try to figure out how to be when people need such handholding and such specific instructions. It, it concerns me because that will ultimately have you working on a, an assembly line, you know, standing in a manufacturing plant in Detroit, Michigan, where they tell you exactly what to do every minute of the day. But the more you move away from that model, the more you're likely to truly embrace how God has gifted you and to experience the benefits of that being a sense of fulfillment, accomplishment, peace, and unexpected financial rewards, the more you move away from that. 
Now, again, we, we all want, I mean, read, study, learn, go to workshop seminars, I, not in any way diminishing the value of all that. But ultimately, you've got to take the initiative to draw your own map. Man, that's something that I need to, I need to develop that more so that I can help people, but at the same time help them see the potential they have to draw their own map. Okay, here, here's a couple questions that are, are way beyond the scope of any podcast and beyond the scope of any one book, but I'm going to jump into this just lightly because this is such a common theme, and I'm thrilled and honored to have the opportunity to respond to questions like this. But here, here's a question from Jeff. Dan, I noticed you use this scripture from the Bible on page two of the 48 low-cost business ideas. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What, if I may ask, is your belief in God? Respectfully, Jeff. Here's another question. comes from Debbie. I'm beginning to work through your book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. I've only just finished chapter one, but I'm wondering if you have a definition for God. You supply definitions for work and leisure, for example, but not for God. How am I to define God in order to follow your suggestions? I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I would like to know if your suggestions will work for those who do not know God. Thank you, Debbie. You know, these are very fair questions. This is not something I take lightly. I am thrilled and, again, honored to have the opportunity to respond to these challenging questions. I have no desire to only speak to people who believe the same way that I do, where we have a whole lot of preconceived ideas, and this is where we go to church on Sunday, and this is what we believe, and by golly, we never do that. I want to be engaged in rich intellectual discourse with people who have not had the same history that I do and are not at the particular same place that I am in terms of believing whatever it happens to be, what kind of car to drive or how to invest money. And certainly these questions are legitimate. So let me just respond a little bit here. And and I have thought about this some. I'm going to read a response that I sent to one of these listeners who ask a question, you know, how do I, will your suggestions work for those who do not know God? I say, Debbie, you ask a very fair question. And yes, I suppose I make some basic assumptions about my readers and listeners. And I also suppose I purposely avoid being too clear on a definition of God because people have such varied opinions on their perspective of God. Like the thousands of variations of meaningful work, one sense of God ranges from an old man with a big stick to simply the impetus behind the design we see in a rose. However, if we don't acknowledge God in some form, then our life here becomes pretty utilitarian. We are born, we have a physical existence, and then we die, and that's it. Belief in God frames our existence here as a part of something much larger. Acknowledging our spiritual side allows us to believe that we existed in a spiritual form before we were born and that we'll return to another spiritual form after we die. It gives a much larger perspective to the interconnectivity of our lives together here. Now, I came out of a very strict religious family, and when I started college, I decided to reject that belief system and just believe what I could understand and explain but then our first child was born. When I saw that little boy's excitement about Christmas, a 
pretty rock, a flower, and the many things he couldn't fully understand, I was blown away. He loved the mystery of things that were beautiful and impossible to explain. And I wanted that same belief and excitement in my own life. So I made the decision to enlarge my own sense of wonder, to believe in God and to seek experiences and opportunities that I could not begin to logically explain. See, when I look at the petals of a flower, or when I see stars perfectly in place, when I watch the birth of a newborn baby or walk through the woods holding the hand of my three-year-old granddaughter, I can't begin to logically understand what I see or feel. When I've moved When I am moved deeply by beautiful music, I know I've been taken to a place beyond my physical surroundings. And I love the richness those things bring to an otherwise purely physical life. I don't pretend to be able to convince you of anything, but at some level I have chosen to be content with what is called Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager is a suggestion posed by the French philosopher, mathematician, and physicist Pascal that even though the existence of God cannot be determined through reason, a person should wager as though God exists because living life accordingly has everything to gain and nothing to lose. So this simply means I'm going to live my life believing that there is a God, that he created our universe, put things in motion in a meaningful way, and cares about me individually. And thus comes the application. If there is a God who designed me with a specific goal in mind, then I want to pay attention to what I know about myself and from that create a clear focus. Then finding work becomes more than just creating a paycheck. I want work that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, and profitable. I want work that is the daily application of my purpose, my calling, my destiny, my mission, And yes, I believe that is possible for everyone. Thus, it follows that without that framework, work is simply reduced to something we do to pay the bills. So if you do not know God, I do think that limits your options for work that matters. Now, this is not a step-by-step process either for believing in God. But it's something that I have chosen to do because it helps me frame everything that I do here. You know, I love the mystery and magic of things that I don't fully understand. And and, and that, that delight in the things that I can understand increases, even as it increases with my age, even as I increase my... um, my, not only my desire, but my study to understand things more clearly. But there are some things that I'm very content to not understand clearly. And I, I want to just be, continue to be delighted by the mystery of that. I would encourage you to do that. Now, again, this isn't a concise explanation for who God is. I, I don't even attempt to go there, but it's somewhat of at least of an explanation of how I've chosen to live my life. And I find it very fulfilling in having done that. I believe that they, I do have a purpose, and I believe that I'm very clear on what my purpose for being here is. Regardless of what confidence I have of what comes in the afterlife or what came before, I mean, those things, I don't lay awake at night trying to figure that all out. I, I appreciate the mystery of that. But my positioning 
for how I've chosen to believe has a lot to do with my excitement about every day here. Well, thanks for your questions. And again, those are very common questions that I receive daily and something I do take seriously and hope that my in my writing and speaking that I convey at least how I've chosen to respond to those same questions. Kevin says, Dan, I've been blogging for a year now and plan to take that material and publish a book mainly to further speaking engagements and ministry about the topic of raising a special needs child. I plan to attend right to the bank in September. Any advice on building this concept path? I feel led to offer encouragement to others on the same journey. Well, thanks for your note, Kevin. I'm very familiar with your blogging. Having seen, I watch what you do on 48days.net, blogging about Matthew. I mean, what an amazing uh, testimony you have about uh, being a daddy to a special needs child. And I think what you're doing now is exactly what I would recommend. You're building an audience. You test ideas. You get feedback. From that, it's very easy to move into doing an ebook. Uh, seminars, workshops, teleseminars, speaking engagements, full books. So you're right on track. Just be very uh, intentional about doing what you're doing. So you are documenting the experiences with Matthew and you're sharing your own thoughts and feelings, the things that you've learned, those things position you for the speaking and writing that you want to do. You're right on track. Adam from San Antonio says, Dan, I love your books. Appreciate your podcast. You and your good friend, Dave Ramsey have truly inspired me. I've been in the banking industry, and now things are changing. Uh, He says he's had some experience with multi-level marketing. May go back to that. Like the 81% of other people, he feels like he has a few good books in him. Everything from stories to call center customer service help guides to an idea called Banking for the Rest of Us. I have a number of other interests from cars, motorcycles, t-shirt ideas. I was actually trying to convince my wife to let me take the trip up to see you at the compound for the writing event. However, because of the money situation, that's not possible at this time. I guess my question is, how do you go about finding your next line of work that does not feel like work? Part of me feels that I cannot go back to the corporate world. I need to get something off the ground for myself that I can be proud of, take care of my family. Any information or ideas you might have would be truly appreciated. You know, Great question, Adam. Thanks for submitting that. You know, when we're talking about developing work that does not feel like work, sometimes we have almost a sense of guilt about that, especially if we have a spouse who is engaged in regular work and we're developing something that's just going to be fun. But the proof is in the pudding, really. I mean, if you can figure out a way to stay at home, you develop a line of work and you do some writing that turns into income or you do something on eBay or in another MLM company or whatever it happens to be. If you do that and you produce results that duplicate the income that you're having now or surpass that, boy, nobody's going to find fault with that. And all of a sudden, that little thing that you're doing, you know, out in the garage or up in the attic or in the back bedroom uh, turns into real money. People will take you seriously on that. As they say, you know, success is the greatest revenge. And people who say, oh, you can never do that or, gee, you're not going to get a job. Gee, you're just going to stay home while your wife works. Well, you don't want those to be the primary thoughts or the primary reality six months from now. But if you can create a plan and you do turn it into a legitimate way to create viable income, then by all means do that. And and then you have the satisfaction of, you know, it isn't really work. Yeah, it doesn't feel like work. I mean, it, it took a while for me coming out of a farming background to, to, to really, I mean, we were so 
production-focused. There was never a moment's rest. Resting, you know, was for sissies and something you did on Sunday, but the rest of the week, by golly, if you weren't working, you weren't being productive. Even sitting around, you know, reading or talking with other people was really kind of worthless. You needed to be doing. So we were very much focused on what we were doing, but not what we were becoming. We have so many options in today's environment to become something and not just some theoretical, you know, thinker or monk, but to turn that thinking into something that not only gives us a sense of satisfaction, but also creates income. Do I feel guilty about the life that I have now? I mean, my goodness. I mean, at 1030 on a given morning, I mean, we were standing here a little bit ago in my office, my son and daughter-in-law were in here. We were just shooting the breeze and looked outside and there were two young deer playing. I mean, the white tails flying. They were just chasing each other and jumping. They weren't running from anything. They're just playing right out here in our front yard. I mean, what a delightful thing to be doing. Now, you know, I'm not next to the grindstone. I didn't go off to the salt mines this morning. This is an integral part of my work. My day is often filled with things that look like play. I mean, I do really want people to be confused about in watching me, whether I'm working or playing, because I think that the things that I do blend both because I enjoy what I do, but what I do also takes care of me being a responsible provider financially for my family, passing things on to my kids and grandkids. I mean, it's all part, it's all one and the same. So it's not a distinction. So get over that mentality that you may have in just coming out of corporate America, the banking world, where unless you put a suit and tie on and go off to the office every morning, you're not really working. No, your work is going to engage what you do best, what makes your heart sing, and still you can put a plan together. How is that going to create income when when you have the ongoing responsibility to do that? No conflict there at all. Jody says, I've gone through the full shebang profile. I've read both 48 Days, No More Mondays. I'm reading What Colors My Parachute. I can do a lot of things, but I'm not sure what I'm really great at. Questions like, what is your strength? Kill me. Please help. Now, Jody, you've got to get over that hang up of finding the one right thing. What is the one right thing that I'm going to do and everything else is doesn't even compare? Well, there, there ought to be a lot of things that you recognize you can do well. I mean, I can build things. I can remodel houses. I can paint. I can write. I can teach, counsel, coach. I know a lot about cars. I mean, but at some point I have to narrow down and decide what am I going to work on that I want to really do well. Doesn't mean that's the only thing I can do. And that's what you're talking about. All this reading, exploring, you know, there's not just one thing that you have the ability to do, or even one thing that you can do or one thing that you want to do. But at some point you have to make a choice. Doesn't mean you can't do the others or that you'll never come back to them, but you need to make a choice where you say for the next two or three years, this is what I'm going to focus on. It's in that focus that you develop an extraordinary expertise, that you become a linchpin, that you become somebody who's known for having a very, very high level of skill in a particular area. I mean, somebody who's a brain surgeon 
surely that person did not at some point figure out I could not possibly be a podiatrist, the other end of the body. You know, I could not possibly uh, be a, a heart surgeon. I could not possibly be in pediatrics or gynecology. No, the person probably had the ability to do any of that, but at some point decided, you know what, I'm going to make this my specialty. I'm going to study the brain. I'm going to do my residency in that. I'm going to you know, go to symposiums and workshops that teach me more about that. And I'm going to become really highly skilled at that one small area of the practice of medicine. That's where you get power in doing what you're doing. But don't get hung up. Stop wasting time looking for the only, the one right thing that you can do. We'll make a list of 20 if you need to over the course of 30 days, narrow down to three or four that, you know, really fits you well, do a little bit more research there and then simply choose one and go on and don't look back. James says, uh, Dan, I've been wondering about writing and selling a business plan online. I see them being sold on eBay for 20 to $30. Um, what's a great way to make some money. I have firsthand knowledge about some businesses I've run in the past and one I run currently. So I do have the priceless information that one would need to start a similar business. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Now, if you do a search for business plans, you're going to see hundreds of them that are available out there and they're free. I mean, I have business plan on my site that you can go for free and open up and just fill that out. So I think you're going to have a hard time if you are that generic, but just like the question a little bit ago here that I answered, you know, be specific, narrow down. So if you have, I mean, if you go to entrepreneur magazine site, they, they have tons of startup guides there. So you aren't going to see, now I'm sure they have a business plan that's generic, but the more popular ones are how to start an automobile detailing business or, you know, how to start a freelance writing business or how to start an information uh, as an information consultant or how to open your own, you know, fast food restaurant or how to have a cleaning service. So I would encourage you to do the same. Take your specific businesses that you've been involved in and say then, you know, how to have a pet walking service that's profitable, how to have your own gift basket business. So make it specific in what you do. And I think you can, in fact, be very successful selling business plans for those specific businesses. Rock and roll. Let me know what you have. I hope you promote them when you get those specific businesses, business plans up and running. JP's from Tampa says, Dan, I recently started a pressure washing business. I've been walking around neighborhoods, dropping off business cards and flyers. Should I ignore neighborhoods that have no solicitation signs posted? I've noticed that those are out in the front of most of the deed restricted neighborhoods. What penalties are there possible by ignoring them? <laughs> well, what do you do? What do you do if you're a salesman and you approach a building and it says no solicitation? And what does that mean? I mean, it's just some rough kind of process to try to narrow down the number of people that come in. Is that going to stop a real salesperson? Not a chance. I did direct sales, advertising sales for a couple of years, a little concept I developed. And so I would just walk into places. Well, a lot of businesses have those signs up. 
no solicitors allowed, stay away salesman, whatever, whatever. I mean, I ignored those always, never paid any attention to them. I was never contacted by a building you can't be here. There was one time when I was rudely confronted by a sales manager in a car dealership, walked into a car dealership to sell them an ad. This guy, I mean, arrogant, conceited, obviously carried a big stick, wanted to be the hero for everybody. And he reamed me out in front of everybody else in the sales lobby, his other salespeople. Didn't you see that sign? We don't allow salespeople in here, blah, blah, blah. I said, yes, I did see that sign. I apologize. I will leave the premises right now. I never got back in my car. I went right outside, picked up my phone and called him on the telephone. I said, this is Dan Miller. I was just in your dealership. I'm requesting an opportunity to come in and show you a sales opportunity. And the guy was still, you know, oh, what are you talking? I said, look, what would you want a salesperson in your dealership to do if they had been treated as you've just treated me? Would you want them to walk away or would you expect a salesman to come back and try again to be persistent? The guy absolutely, totally, 100% turned his, turned his tide, invited me back in, and I sold him a very expensive ad. If you're going to be in sales, you are not going to be deterred by no solicitation signs. It, you're never going to survive in sales if that's enough to have you walk away. Absolutely. And now what penalties? There's no, not going to be any penalties. I mean, the worst that could happen is somebody is going to say, gee, in this neighborhood, we don't allow that. You say, oh, okay, I won't be back here anymore. I won't hang out my flyers anymore. But what, what is more likely to happen is that having those signs there will deter 90% of the people who are trying to promote a service like you are. They won't go there and thus you'll have a captive audience. That's the way I would approach it. Make yourself, turn that into an opportunity for yourself. Well, hey, this is Dan Miller, your host for these 48 minutes. Thank you for being part of this community. Thanks for your ongoing questions. You can submit those, the podcast link, just shoot those in. I'll be happy to work them into an upcoming show or shoot an email to askdan at 48days.com. Get involved in the 48days.net community. A lot of people there having ideas and they, like you, are creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, and profitable. Make it a great week.